Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Along after our 8 o'clock update, it is Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge program here on The Fan. Ed Randall's talking Baseball is along after our 9 o'clock update this and every Sunday morning at uh, this time of the year. We move into what should be a wide-ranging and interesting discussion with a guest who has joined us a number of times previously. We always like when we have discussions with the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, Dr. John Huber. He is uh, joining us on our program and we're going to get into talking about a couple of um, interesting areas. First of all, Dr. Huber, I hope you've been well. Welcome to our program. Well, thank you for having me back on, Bob. I'm doing great. For those who don't know, a little bit of background here on the organization. How do you describe what mainstream mental health is about? Well, our, our whole goal essentially is is tied up in our name. We want to make the discussion about mental health mainstream. We want people to be able to talk about it. The more we know, the more information we have, and the more understanding that it's really just part of being human and not necessarily something to be afraid of. Okay. Now, as you say that, I've been thinking in the past week, um, about a number of folks who live in the state of Texas where you live um, because there is a major story that has been in the news in recent weeks. Interestingly enough, the story was much larger in focus in the area of the country where you live in Texas than it was here uh, for, I guess, obvious reasons. But then within the past eh, week to 10 days, it kind of exploded uh, nationally. And that's the story surrounding this, what's referred to as the Austin or Austin area serial bomber uh, who had taken his life uh, when he was being pursued by um, police who had tracked him uh, as he was moving. He uh, Reports are that he actually detonated a bomb and took his life as a couple of police officers were approaching the vehicle that he was driving. Um, as that story developed, and we think about this idea of mental health, give us some insight on how it is that you viewed this person. Well, it is kind of interesting, but essentially what this person was, was a serial killer. So uh, they just chose an explosive device instead of strangling or using a gun or a knife to kill their target. And, uh, you know, he moved from being relatively pointed in his attack by he, he actually had a list of people 
and addresses that he was sending bombs to. He delivered them, the first three of them, by by hand. Uh, the fourth one, uh, his MO or modus operandi had been identified by the police and they were looking for someone just taking packages. So he changed that MO and set up a trip line on what essentially was part of a hike and bike trail where a mother and her stroller could have been a victim as it was two adult men were the victims. And uh, he became very indiscriminate from being very targeted in his in his mechanism and, and his plan. And uh, then he decided to go back to being, you know, targeting the, the victims and he tried to use an established uh, mail carrier to target the victims again. Only he didn't understand what was going on in the automated systems and one of the arms that actually would push the package over onto a different track for a different uh, mail route hit one of the bombs and triggered the mechanism itself as opposed to actually having to have somebody open the flap and flip the switch that way. At which point, because of the mechanism involved, he was easily tracked. The computer, you know, we knew exactly, or the police and FBI knew exactly who paid for what and where, and it was just a matter of time at that point to get caught. So essentially he was a psychopath, a sociopath. And when we use that term, a lot of us have heard it. What exactly does that? What exactly is a psychopath or sociopath? In, in simple terms, it's someone who has no conscience and only values human life from what he can get out of that life. And in this case, he was getting a sense of control and empowerment, and uh, he got a lot of control out of watching. You know, the city here and the surrounding area, over a million people changing their lifestyle patterns and, and acting out of fear. And that's very powerful for a young person who's never had a sense of control in his life and was feeling a lot of, a lot of inability to affect the outcome of his life at that current time. There are so many troubling aspects of this story, but... You know, I kind of alluded to this in um, introducing this aspect of the discussion and in introducing you. What has it been like in um, in Texas, and I guess especially too in that area surrounding Austin, um, in this period of time where you know people have kind of, I'm assuming, been sort of walking on eggshells. Well, you know, it's like I have two teenage children, and one of the concerns that I've heard a lot of, because uh, at least in one of the cases, uh, a teenage son picked up a package and opened it up once he got it inside, and unfortunately, he died from that. But, uh, you know, I, I hear it from my kids' friends, their families, and uh, I hear it in the grocery store when I got my hair cut, people talking about, you know, they're just not buying things online. They're actually we're going to some of the big box stores and stuff like that instead of ordering stuff like they had been because they were afraid that it might, you know, be a, an opportunity for the bomber to actually strike at them. And uh, there was a lot of fear and concern. I mean, we had South by Southwest going on right. during this time frame, And we were lucky that he didn't, you know, 
attacked during those nine days, but we had a copycat person who emailed in a bomb threat and actually shut down South by Southwest the last Saturday evening. And uh, it, it was it was interesting to watch the visitors to our city. I was involved somewhat with South by Southwest, and they were much more relaxed and nonchalant. But the the people from Austin were much more uh, controlled in their movements, kind of vigilant, and you know checking things out a little more than normal. It was kind of uh, somber in a lot of ways. But it was good to have that, and it was also good that we didn't really have an issue over those nine days. And uh, I think that's when that next bomb that, that went off that injured two men on the bike path, that, that kind of hit us really hard, and immediately there was a big change in behavior uh, that afternoon, or that, that next day, actually. So. Part of the discussion also has to surround this idea that it seems an increasing number of relatively young people are becoming involved in actions that are deadly, drastic, and um, their regard for human life seems to be almost non-existent. I mean, is that a fair characterization? That That is a fair ca- categorization and behavior angle that most sociopaths actually have. And the reality of it is they're very, it's a very small portion of our population. But let's say, you know, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of our population. Every year our population grows, so the sheer numbers grow. And at 330 million people, that gives us almost 3 million people in this country with those types of, of belief sets or lack of consciousness that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And they're going to act. It doesn't take a lot of people to cause trauma in, as a society in that situation. And that's unfortunate because an individual can have that kind of significant thing, but you got some key elements that we see that are very common. These individuals tend to be that, that make their mark, whether it's Ted Bundy or the Austin bomber is that they have very high levels of intelligence. They have an inability to maintain long-term close personal relationships an inability to maintain long-term productive work. And, an interesting thing that we're seeing now is kind of a catalyst is we're seeing an absentee father in their lives when they were growing up. Now, that doesn't mean, for example, that a single mother can't take that role on or that, you know, we have to have a mother-father parenting system. But what we know is that two parents is significantly better for an individual than having one parent. So even if that parent, both parents are of same sex, that two-parent uh, parenting mechanism is much more effective when these individuals are troubled like this. And we have, as a society, become more and more single parents. You know, 50% of our, our uh, uh, marriages end up in divorce. We have, you know, some somewheres around 60 to 70% of individuals as children experience a divorced 
situation for parents and it's hard not to have repercussions from that and this is part of it you know as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking about a number of different things. You mentioned Ted Bundy, and I've been thinking about uh, Ted Bundy as we're speaking um, <laughs> because, you know, you use that term uh, sociopath or psychopath, and he seems to fit the role perfectly um, when you stop and think about it. And... Um, very, very disturbing that people can be so um, demonic in their beliefs and in their actions and their disregard for others and for human life. But the other aspect of this is, especially with this young man, and his name is Mark Anthony Condit, this idea of when somebody's cornered they take their own lives. I mean, detonating a bomb, that's, that's not going to end, end well, obviously. <laughs> no, no. Um, what's prompting this desire for these folks to check out? Well, what, what we're seeing is whether it's, you know, when somebody goes in, for example, the Florida high school shooting, mm -hmm. when somebody goes into that kind of a mechanism or, or situation, their anticipation is that they're not going to come out alive. Ted Bundy, as a serial killer, he believed he was truly smarter than all the police forces out there, than the FBI, and didn't believe that, that anybody was going to catch him. But he also was very close and personal with his killing. I mean, he was there. And if you, if you get to see his interviews, if you read his statements, he, he was getting turned on exactly. emotionally, sexually, physically by physically taking the life from an individual. And he was not afraid to face his detractors and people who went after him. Exactly. When you're looking at these. Yeah. And that, that's a big change with these serial killers today and mass killers today. And that a lot of them are like, no, 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 no. I want to check out the way I want to check out. I don't want to have to spend my life in prison or give somebody else the quote unquote pleasure of taking my life. So they've got an exit strategy where they're in control. And I think that's the key factor right there, especially with this, this Austin bomber is that control. He got to choose not only his targets, how they were going to die or be maimed, but his end was there. Now, in his diatribe, 25-minute recorded diatribe that he goes on, he tries to paint himself as some sort of victim. Uh, you know, poor me. I, I was at a dead-end job, a dead-end life. I was going nowhere. And I argue that there's tens of thousands, if not you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans who are on, in that situation Yet he chose or chose to go and take lives and harm people, and all those other people don't. This individual was significantly uh, frayed as far as uh, his value of life and his lack of taking responsibility for this whole thing. And that's where using the bombs and having an exit strategy of taking his own life shows that lack of responsibility that 
a lot of people are directing towards the millennials and not being responsible for their behavior, expecting people to take care of them, entitlement. I don't believe that all millennials feel that way. Okay, I but want to, I want to follow up on a couple of different things that okay, you said. Okay, Let's I'll take stop. take a pause pause in our discussion. So many different areas where we can go. We'll also yes, try to work in some yes. thoughts from some of the folks listening to us too. Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter, and we're in discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is a chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, Mainstream Mental Health, that's all as one word, .org, the website for the nonprofit organization. And he is a mental health professional. He's a clinical forensic uh, psychologist. He is talking with us this hour of our program we're going to go into a couple of different areas. I should mention, too, if you want to join us in the discussion, you can. Um, 877-337-6666. That's our number here at WFAN. We started off in this hour talking about some of the uh, aftermath of uh, this situation with the um, young man who's been labeled the Austin serial bomber. Mark Anthony Condit is his name. He took his life last week as... He had been um, he had pulled over to the side of the road. He was being followed, um, had been tracked by police. And there were several police officers approaching the vehicle that he was driving. And at that time, apparently he detonated a bomb uh, inside the vehicle and took his own life. And we're talking about this whole idea of serial killers. Um, Dr. Huber is providing us with some insight on that. Um, also shared a little bit of uh, thought about uh, Ted Bundy in this discussion. Believe me, we could go hours just on Ted Bundy uh, because that's a very, very bizarre uh, case and individual. Uh, but in this case, what was it like for the people that you're seeing, the people that you're working with, patients, during this period of time when bombs were being detected, the bombs were going off? For for my patients directly, I, I have some patients who have uh, significant anxiety issues, and uh, they were less willing to leave the house, uh, more more isolating. They were afraid, and that their anxiety was exacerbated. I have some patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and it was bringing back some of them to the stimulus that, that caused them. A lot of veterans who were in in you know the battlefields and and areas like Afghanistan and Iraq and having IEDs blowing up all around them at different times without warning. And they were uh, having some increased levels of, of tension and stress in their lives. And uh, at the same time, I feel for, and I, and I know that uh, some of the FedEx employees uh, are going to have issues similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, if not fully developing that. And it may not be for weeks, 
months, maybe even a year or more out before they actually start manifesting some of the symptomology. But so can people within the community that was targeted. These stresses aren't isolated to just the people that were actually blown up, but the terror was within the community. Is there still terror and fear surrounding the idea that there could be other explosives out there? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. Since since his, his uh, demise, there has been a great sense of relief. Um, people are laughing more in public and 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 it's it's interesting i i spend a lot of time out in public and uh, i have i have kids that are active in social activities you know choirs and band activities high school activities and it's just a much more positive feeling within you know a day of the bomber being caught and and dying hmm. interesting that is interesting because um, I know that there was such a strong sense of fear uh, yes. in that area. And, you know, part of that fear surrounded the idea that nobody knew exactly what might happen next. And initially there was some thought about even if he took his own life, could there be other? Uh, bombs out there um and that that was a big fear specifically you know but in his memoirs or whatever he said seven bombs and he had the last one however when the police got to his house they evacuated five square blocks because there were so many explosives in there they were concerned for the immediate vicinity and and possible loss of life there so i think he had a lot bigger plans than what happened but he again had those plans cut short because of exactly what should have happened. Homeland Security acted the way it was supposed to act and got all the policing agencies interconnected and, inter and, and working together. It was actually quite impressive to watch from here. And, you know, this idea of people who, individuals who store huge amounts of weaponry, huge amounts of explosives uh, in their homes. I mean, first of all, that's dangerous to them, but it's also showing a rather callous disregard for the people in their community. I mean, to, to, to a rational person, we've got to think, Wait a minute, what are they thinking? Don't they realize that this basically could blow up a neighborhood? Exactly. And most people with explosives that, that actually have access to them are actually licensed to have access to them. It's, you know, you have to go through a vetting process and, and actually get a license for that. I actually have uh, a friend of mine whose father is an explosives expert and, uh, He's, you know, he's testified in court many a times. Uh, the only type of explosive besides a small amount of like gunpowder, for example, uh, or a bi binomial or two part explosive 
that the average person can get. There's by name brand. It's called Tannerite, and it's used to identify a great distance whether you hit a target or not because it takes a high rate of friction. You can't light that explosive up. It has to actually be hit with the projectile going at least 2,000 feet per, per second to cause ignition because there has to be that compression and friction involved in it so it's a very specialized type of explosive those that's the only one that i'm aware of that is legal besides you know small amounts of gunpowder so this this gentleman was you know far beyond what i would call the average for example gun owner who may have you know ammunition in a safe with their guns and things like that. This was this was an extreme case. And it was, again, someone who didn't care about the laws. And unfortunately, uh, if you know basic chemistry, there is enough chemical agents that are freely purchased in, in this country and, and in most countries that you can make explosives if you just have a little bit of, of chemical understanding and knowledge and can can you know work through a, a chemistry process so it's uh it's not something that is gonna go away but it also takes a little bit of knowledge and work to to get there so it's not like you can go down to walmart and buy a bag of it mm. fortunately fortunately um, definitely <laughs> acts of violence you know, seeing this in the numbers that we are, you know, all these different school shootings taking place, is this a form of addiction? I don't think it's a form of addiction. Actually, the, the rates and numbers of, of mass shootings and serial killings, for example, uh, of the homicides, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of, of homicides that occur annually in this country. It's a very small portion. The problem is it is so dramatic and scary because it hits us at our weakest points. And it becomes a major uh, fear factor for us. So it seems very overwhelming, and uh, it, it definitely sells media and drives emotions. So people tend to react emotionally instead of react rationally. Um, you know, my understanding, you know, rifle or long gun deaths in this country, you know, there are fewer of those than people who actually get beaten by hammers to death every year. So, you know, if we start putting things in perspective, we start acting more rationally and, you know, as a forensic psychologist, oftentimes I'm brought in on really horrific cases and I get asked by judges to explain behavior and I have to step away from however heinous that crime is and and break it down into the harsh realities that, you know, some people think, oh, you're minimizing the significance of this death, but if we're going to actually change behavior and try to make this a better place, we have to step away from that irrational part of us, our emotions and figure out not what we want, but what we need to do to make these changes. And it's a very difficult thing to do as a person. 
the voice of Dr. John Huber, who is our guest this hour of our program. He is chairman for Mainstream Mental Health on the web at MainstreamMentalHealth. That's all this one word, .org. It's a nonprofit organization. We're going to talk more with you, Dr. Huber, as we continue. Um, if you want to join us in the discussion, you can. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. After 8 o'clock, it is Rick Wolf, who's along with the Sports Edge program, and Ed Randall is by after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. It's the Sports Edge program with Rick Wolf that follows our 8 o'clock update on the fan this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Solter. We're in discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is a, a clinical forensic psychologist. He's the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health and has been talking with us since we started the 7 o'clock hour of our program. We were talking about um, the whole um, case with the serial uh, killer in Austin, Texas, the Austin bomber, and talking a little bit about this uh, idea of serial killers, um, sociopaths, psychopaths. Let's shift our discussion over to another aspect of um, mental health and discussion. And here we use the D word, depression. This depression I want to talk about in a couple of different areas. One, in the workplace. And a lot of people probably don't like to think about that. Some people may not even want to talk about it. Do we have any idea how prevalent depression is in the workplace? Uh, in the workplace, the uh, research suggests that, that one out of ten people uh, in, in, at work are ex expressing depressive symptomology, and that leads to decreased workload and decreased productivity. Um, it is, you know, globally, I think the estimates are around a trillion dollars are lost annually because of depression and anxiety. Uh, and recent polls have shown that uh, there's been basically a 68% increase in the workplace by, by people working as far as awareness of depression. And 62% uh, say that they see depression in the workplace regularly so it's up there and it's there all right when we talk about the idea of awareness of depression what about the signs that someone is depressed the signs that people are depressed are, are varied a lot of times it could be irritability uh, in fact a lot of the signs you know they talk about adult onset of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that lack of attention that inability to concentrate and and being very forgetful, those are all signs that you could be having uh, depression, as well as withdrawing from social activities, withdrawing, being late to meetings, uh, simple things like overeating or undereating, any change in diet, any change of sleep. Those are all symptoms that can be related to depression. Mm. And what... In what ways does alcohol use, substance use, or substance abuse 
factor into the prevalence, the incidence of depression in the workplace? What happens with, with alcohol or drug abuse is oftentimes that's a way that people cope internally because, you know, we have a stigma about mental health issues like depression. So we try to take care of things ourselves. We don't sleep well. So we go and we have a glass of wine before we go to bed. Well, that glass of wine becomes two glasses and a bottle and it grows over time and you don't even watch it happen. It just, you know, over time you wake up one day and man, I'm, I'm having to drink a bottle or two of wine to get to sleep at night. And it, becomes thoroughly enmeshed in your your everyday life and individuals oftentimes don't even see that they're doing it Hmm. this whole idea of the stigma about mental health issues some people don't even like to discuss this idea of mental health or different aspects of it how do we get past that well Bob, that, that's a that's a tough tough situation, a tough conversation uh, in in most people's lives because we're afraid of it. I mean, there are some cultures where if you have someone with a mental health disorder, uh, the, the the community believes that you're cursed by God, and so if you have multiple children, you're not going to be able to get your kids married because nobody wants to marry into a cursed family and things like that. So it is taboo in a lot of cultures around the world to talk about it uh you know in in the everyday life we have more and more communication about about mental health issues but it's a lot of lip service i i see millennials college students today who they talk a good talk we need to be you know open-minded to this but then when they have a roommate who gets depressed uh, I've had it a hundred times if I've had it once where that roommate comes to my office and says something like, well, you know, the minute I said something to my roommates, they all, you know, shunned me and don't say that you sound crazy. And because we're afraid of it, we don't know enough actual facts about it. And it's going to be a process. It's not a light switch that we can just change that overnight. And we, we are, Taking part, you and I, I mean, you're on WFAN, a sports channel, and you're actually, you've got a psychologist, and I come on there, you know, not every week, but I do come on there a lot, and we talk about mental health issues, and that's what it takes. We have to do it and make it part of our whole world because it is. It's a human thing. It's not a crazy thing. Millennials. You mentioned millennials earlier in our discussion. Um, I guess the question is, are millennials getting a bad rap? Yes and no. Uh, I have some amazing millennials who work for me, and and the problem is that there's a big enough percentage of those millennials that they overrepresent. If we look at society in general, for example, here in Texas, you know, there's about ten percent of the people who live here in Texas who fit that stereotypical cowboy attitude they wear cowboy boots and cowboy hats and you know they go ride their horses and things like that but that's what the rest of the world thinks of when you say texas the other 90 percent are just like everybody else and they work nine to five jobs they're living in cities and they have to deal with commute commuting back and forth to work and traffic and everything else well the millennials uh they they have that percentage that represents them and if 
overrepresents the majority of the millennials that are out there, but it is a significant number. Instead of 10%, for example, this group of millennials has the highest rate of suicide attempts than any previous generation before them at roughly 20% attempt rate. So that's one in five millennials is contemplating and, and, and attempting suicide. Not being successful gets you, but attempting. Mm. Now to an interesting area of discussion. We're going to talk about surfing. Yes, I said surfing. <laughs> surfing. And, and some of what I've read in preparation for our discussion today. How can surfing be helpful for someone who is dealing with PTSD or depression or even some of the very prevalent sleep problems? Well, you know, talking about destigmatizing mental health, we don't want to go and say, hey, I'm going to my therapy, I'm going to my group session. But if I say I'm going surfing, everybody's like, cool, you know, and you get motivated and pushed to go do that. So you break a barrier by, by doing that. And a lot of our interactions in this world are artificial. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're animals, we're hunter gatherers, and we don't spend enough time out, outdoors and doing the hunting and the chasing and spending time communing with nature. And surfing is an amazing way to do that. It forces you to put down your electronics because you can't take your, your cell phone out on the, on the surfboard with you and text your friends and do selfies. And, you know, I know, I know there are a few, you know, people who try to do that with, with special cameras that are waterproofing stuff, but <laughs> you know, you're, you're separated from that. And all of a sudden you have, it's you and nature, it's you and millions of gallons of water pounding on top of you. And there's something primal about that that is healing and invigorating. So with this idea of somebody who's dealing with, and there are a lot of people who are dealing with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in their lives. And unfortunately, there are also a lot of um, veterans who are dealing with this in various forms. Um, some of them. Uh, don't even know that that's exactly what they're dealing with. Exactly. Um, PTSD, could that actually be helped by this? Yes, it can. Uh, it, 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 it is reaffirming. It's life reaffirming when you get up on that wave, uh, much like, uh, some people use snow skiing the same way. You know, you get up and you go down that steep and you, you're you able to get that exhilaration. And you get into a rhythm with the environment, with our planet. And uh, you're able to then process a lot of your stress and emotion and put things in perspective. And it's it's so healing to to be one with that. Is this something that you recommend to your patients? Well, we're about three and a half hours from from the ocean here. Right. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to do the, the surfing all the time. We do have, believe it or not, a surfing park here in Austin, Texas, where you can come and surf. 
but you have to, you know, only so many people can surf at a time. You actually have to get reservations. So that, that may actually be more prevalent as we move through our society. What I encourage my clients to do, because it's something you can do here all the time, is we have lots of access to uh, hike and bike trails, to outdoor activities, camping, uh, fishing, water sports. Uh, I also encourage things like martial arts and basketball and, you know, lifetime sports like golf, because it gets you outside and it makes it easier for you to to do that that connection with the environment, period. When talking about depression, and we're talking with Dr. John Huber on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning, Sports Edge with Rick Wolf follows our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's talking baseballs along after our 9 o'clock update. Dr. Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, and he's kind enough to be tackling a number of issues with us on our program. When talking about depression, there is some interesting research that talks about a link between social media use and depression. And just saying that, some people probably went, uh-oh. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, social media, you know, it, it is an interesting phenomenon. We look at <laughs> that, evolution. That's an understatement, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, for example, television, you know, it started off very small. We had just a few channels and it was black and white and it took decades for it to get to where it is today. Social media virtually overnight in a period of 10 or 15 years has become pivotal to everybody's life, whether you're in business, whether you're a high school student, a middle school student or a, a middle aged housewife, it has become enmeshed in our life and we can't see a life without it right now. That's how we communicate to everybody. Unfortunately for some people, we see everybody else talking about how beautiful and wonderful their life is. Cause you know, we don't want a bunch of whiners and crybabies in our society. So we don't talk oftentimes about the difficulty we're having, but we definitely talk about the good times we're having. So when people see all these posts, and they think, man, you know, I've, I've been in this job for, you know, the last 40 weeks and I haven't had a break. And these people seem like they're always taking these beautiful vacations. And so you start wallowing in your own despair. How come my life isn't that good? And it's really easy to get tied up in that. Plus, it represents a very unrealistic perfection that uh, we often only get to see, for example, in the movies. This idea of the attraction that so many people have to these electronic devices, the phone, the tablet, the computer, and to social media, is this an addiction? Yes, actually, because unlike television, you get to interact with it. And when you interact with it, you post your own stuff up on your, your Instagram, for example, and somebody clicks on it and says they like it. We've actually measured it, and you're getting the same neurotransmitters responding in your brain, making you feel good as someone using an addictive substance like heroin or cocaine. So even though it's not as strong, it's continuous and persistent 
and it becomes part of your your everyday experience, and you just crave that next little bit of that dopamine. Uh, except it, it's the same kind of thing you get when you see your best friend walking down the hallway and you get to see them and hug them and shake their hands and ask them. Only you're missing the actual physical content. So it's much like a diet soda where you get the sweetness, but you have none of the nutritional value, even though sodas don't have a lot. But there is some in there. You don't get any of that with social media. Most interesting discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is chairman for Mainstream Mental Health. Mainstream Mental Health, that's all as one word, dot O-R-G, the uh, website. Dr. Huber, thank you very much for joining us on our program. Sorry we couldn't get to uh, calls from folks listening to us, but we did call, uh, cover a couple of different areas that I think were uh, very timely and hopefully provided some good insight for some of the folks as well. You stay well. Thank you for joining us on our program. Thank you, Bob. As usual, way too short a conversation. It goes by so fast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.